0: Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. May you find in the garden of spirituality a flower whose fragrances suit you. And today we're going to talk about something very exciting, um, how to enjoy life, yogically speaking. Um, A few classes ago, Eileen asked a very good question. She asked, what place is there in yoga for the enjoyment of pleasures and sense gratification. And it's somewhat tied into Grace's question from last week, which is, what is the role of the small self or the personality or the ego? And these questions, any intelligent yogi must ask them because yoga asks you to do two things. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Some gratification for that small self yoga asks you to do two things or at least yoga prescribes two things as good that seems counterintuitive that they would be good so the first one is renunciation so yoga as a path advocates uh, advocates for a renunciation kind of attitude whereby you forsake worldliness or you Starve the senses, in a way, in some of the more classical schools of yoga. You see the enjoyment of the senses as that which takes you outside of your meditation and distracts you from your inner quest. That's one. And that might cause some counterintuitive reaction because you might think, but surely life is meaningful because of the senses, because of our ability to taste and to smell and to listen to good music, all that stuff. So we're going to address that. And the second thing is, surely there's some meaning to being a person, to having a past, to having a future. And yoga says, well, be here now. And to be here now is to not have a past, to not have a future, and to effectively not be a self. So then you might ask, why, why is that worth it? Why is it worth giving up uh, this part? that might be functional, that might bring meaning, that might be worthwhile to have. So we're going to answer those two things. And at the end of the lecture, hopefully we can come to some conclusion as to what it means to truly enjoy life. Like what does enjoying life look like? And are there degrees of enjoyment? So that's what we're talking about today. In the beginning, I just want to say, the first thing I want to say is that We're going to talk a lot about Tantra today and how to use the senses as spiritual practice. But the first thing I want to say is that even the most classical yogi, it's not that they are against pleasure. They are just against small pleasures. That's the important thing. So if ever a yogi speaks out against pleasure, it's not because there is some puritanical or conservative Um, repression in the same way some maybe other exoteric religions might have treated pleasure you know like because they're so scared of being a body They fear pleasure and they see pleasure as sin and therefore repress or create very harmful narratives around sensuality and pleasure. You know, so this is the context that a lot of Western students are coming from. You know, they grew up in uh, Catholic churches that for all its glory in America has had many permutations of demonizing the body, demonizing pleasure and robbing life of its juice. Um, In fact, before the Renaissance, and a lot of people argue the Renaissance, what happened was when Botticelli's Venus washed up on the beach with her rosy cheeks, that was the return of sensuality to the West, the revisiting of the body. And that's what created a flowering of art and poetry and music. Before that, the artwork was very gothic. It was very, um, everyone was so emaciated and pale and skinny. And there was like no life in Europe. Cal, welcome, Calvoyant, Calvoyant, welcome, welcome, good to have you. So we're talking about how to enjoy life. Hello, (laughs) I love that, (laughs) welcome. So we're talking about how to enjoy life um, from a yogi's perspective. And I first wanted to address how the yogi's denial of pleasure is very different from the Catholic Church's repression of pleasure in the past few centuries of human history. So it's possible for people to be so obsessed with something that they react against it. So we're all familiar with the fundamentalist who sees the Disney cartoons as sexual. So there was a scandal way back when where a bunch of Islamic fundamentalists came out and they denounced Disney And upon closer inspection, it seemed like they grew up in cultures that demonized sexuality and pleasure. And as a result of their own repressed sexuality, they were projecting it into the things around them, things that weren't inherently sexual, like Disney cartoons, you know. And those innocent things became charged with the sexuality and then demonized. So the vibration of that is very... Constricted, it's very low vibrational. That kind of bigotry, conservatism, fundamentalism. It's a different energy. The yogic renunciation, by comparison, doesn't have... Um, oh, I'm teaching a class on stay yoga. So, yeah, that's where else I'm streaming. Someone else on TikTok. Because I'm looking over here. And people are like, where are you looking? <laughs> but, yeah, I'm teaching a class. But, you know... <laughs> anyway, so... Um, that, that energy is different. The energy of a yogi renunciating is simply this. Certain pleasures are short-term, they are transient, and indulging in them will jeopardize your ability to enjoy deeper pleasures. So William, William Shakespeare said, for one sweet grape, who will the whole va- va- wine forsake? Right? Who would destroy the whole vine for one sweet grape? So that idea of that having a bigger picture, um, denying yourself immediate gratification for some larger payoff in the future. Like that's stuff that we already kind of know about. So it is in that sense that the yogi offers renunciation as a spiritual tool. So that's the first thing. The yogi is not against pleasure. The yogi is against small pleasures. So that's the first thing. So what are the small pleasures that we're talking about? So what pleasures would you be renouncing? on this journey. So let's say, you know, the file arrives on your desk, it's the yogi sadhana file, and your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become spiritual and don't be so worldly. So what does that look like? Um, And you really have to ask yourself whether or not you're truly being fulfilled by pleasure. So there might be a narrative that pleasure is good, but upon closer inspection, the opposite might be true. So the yogi offers you these maybe three ways to find meaning in, the life, meaning in life, and the yogi will show you how all of those things aren't as meaningful as they're made out to be. So maybe in today's kind of class we'll have a little activity. I'll show you the three ways to find meaning in the world, and if you can think of stuff outside of that, we'll put that under the lens of scrutiny as well. We'll use the yogic microscope and see whether that can be fulfilling. So the first one, the easiest one is addiction to pleasure or chasing sense gratification, sensual pleasure. So most people think that this is the purpose of life, to increase sense pleasure to have more and more opportunities to gratify the senses. So Western culture is at the epitome of this kind of thing, where there's like a decadent hot dog in one hand, the ear pods listening to um, stimulating music, and at the same time, they're watching TV. You know, there's like all, every sense gate is being bombarded by stimulation all the time. And the general paradigm there is we have senses, They delight in the object of senses, so now let's give them as much as possible. And there are a few problems here, and I think there are five. The problem of chasing sensual pleasures in this regard is one, the joy of it is very transient. So that's the first problem. So let's say you enjoy chocolate chip cookies, like that's your sensual pleasure, that's what gets you off. The eating of the chocolate chip cookie the pleasure you get from it is so momentary and so fleeting as to almost not have happened you know it's almost like a non-event what you are clinging on to is not the pleasure but the memory of that pleasure the memory of that pleasure drives you wild so the first thing is that you're not actually getting any pleasure it's too quick for you to even have registered that an event happened but it was good you know it was good in that moment so that's the problem. The first problem is that it's fleeting. The second problem is that it's addictive because it's so fleeting. You need to keep having it, and that's that's difficult because then um, it creates other constraints in your life. For instance, you might uh, waste all your finances chasing that chocolate chip cookie, and that can cause suffering in another sense. Or um, you in indulging in it over and over and over again, because it's so fleeting that you have to keep doing it, it creates painful or harmful imbalances in the body that come from overindulging in food or overindulging in sex or overindulging, you know, any kind of overindulgence eventually creates pain in the body from the imbalances that it causes, the way that it harms health. So the third thing is that the same pleasure won't always do it. You have to keep upping it. And that's another problem. It's like at first the bite of the chocolate chip cookie is good. The second bite is not that good. The third bite and then there's like diminishing returns, you know? So anybody who's ever had a, a, like a drug experience, the first one was always the best. And every subsequent experience was an attempt to get back to that first experience. Um, in fact, that's the way it is with most things. As a baby, eating was awesome. Like just putting food in your mouth is like, oh, it was so good. And nothing will be as good as that. (laughs) So a lot of what we do now is chasing the high of the first time we did it. So the third problem, yes, and that's where the addiction comes in. So it's like this loop where the pleasure is fleeting and momentary. It's gone before you can grasp it. It often requires more and more and more to get to that same level that is, causes painful imbalances in the body which of course you need more of the pleasure to distract you from. And finally all of this creates, and this is the clincher, a feeling of loss of freedom. So once a pleasure takes hold of you, there is a kind of feeling of shame almost, like a kind of indignity. And it's almost a kind of, oh, I've lost or the nobility of my spirit. Like it's a feeling of I've, I've let myself down, or I'm letting myself down. And that feeling, yeah, like that feeling of, wow, I'm, I'm not a strong and empowered individual. Now this is contrary to your true nature. So we talked a long time ago about our true nature and how yoga is not um, a developmental science. You're not on a path of developing yourself. You're not out to attain something or become liberated. Yoga is merely a tool to show you what you already are, but that in this moment, you're not quite in touch with. Yoga gets you back to your original state, and your original state is one of limitless creativity, freedom, joy. It's bound by nothing. It's pure, uh, limitless consciousness. So when addiction comes in, you start to feel bound. This contradicts your true nature. So you start to feel inauthentic. So anybody who goes down the path of pleasure, sooner or later will arrive at a point where one, your pleasures no longer satisfy you. You're numb to them. you, You need to keep trying everything. So when the coke doesn't do it anymore, when the food doesn't do it anymore, maybe the cigarettes will. The cigarettes, the coke does. the Coke does, and then it's like sex. But the sex is not quite doing it. So now you need to have like three sons. and then there's like an orgy, and then the coke has to be there at the orgy. And then no, you got to get it just right. So you must fast that day, so you can, you know. It's uh, there's a certain kind of loop that I mean, like you get into this like very kind of anal obsessive, like everything has to be just right, and you spend so much. You're you're fussing about everything to get it just perfect, and then it's fleeting. Then, even if you do get it just right, which is very rare, it's fleeting, yeah. And it's one second. And like the orgasm, as good as it is, it's only so good. It's only for so long, you know? So there's nothing inherently wrong with pleasure, except it becomes incredibly debilitating to the human spirit when it is seen as the only purpose in life. So that's, that's part of the problem. Anyone who sees pleasure as the be-all, end-all of life will sooner or later come to this conclusion. And you know, it takes some people longer than others. Certain people can extrapolate, um, other people need to finish the pleasure, need to get to the very, um, what do we call it, nauseating end of a pleasure. So you can think of it like this, peanut butter, if you have a, you know, a desire to eat peanut butter. Yeah, there's a feedback loop here. Or you know, like you're addicted to peanut butter. There's that feeling when you eat a whole jar and you get to the bottom and you're just like sick and you don't want to see another spoon of peanut butter. (laughs) I I also haven't done that, but we're (laughs) extrapping you know the nausea of satisfying a desire so much until it's robbed of its sweetness. And you know, like the cocaine, like there's a point where the nose is just numb and it doesn't hit anymore. You can't breathe. Yeah, you can't breathe (laughs) and it's like congested. So This is a a way to think of pleasure. The four problems with it is one, it's transient, so it doesn't last. Two, um, the same pleasure won't do it for you tomorrow like it did yesterday, so you need to keep upping it. Three, because you keep upping it, it's causing painful imbalances in your body and your life that further harm or impair your ability to enjoy that pleasure. And four, Because of the transiency, um, tolerance effect, and other things that are harmed in your life, you need more and more of that pleasure. So there's an addiction. So these are the four problems with pleasure. And that's why to enjoy life cannot be just to maximize pleasure. That can't be what it is. But maybe there are different kinds of pleasures. And maybe some pleasures aren't as susceptible to these four harms as other pleasures. So think of it maybe um, a person who comes into wealth will start to enjoy the world. But you might notice something interesting. First, they start to enjoy the world sensually. So they go out and they buy drugs, they buy food, they buy, you know, they're sensual. But then their pleasures become a little more refined and they start to try to enjoy the world culturally. So they try to enjoy fine art, or fine music. So these are still sense gratifications, but they've become a little subtler or finer. So where before your pleasure was that like meaty hot dog, you know, at the side of the street um, at 2 a.m. in downtown L.A., now it's like escargot in France, you know, it's like a Parisian fine dining experience. It's the same thing, but elevated to maybe a more subtle or finer um, sense. And that's because uh, the old things don't do it for you anymore. So you have to keep refining your pleasures. So even in the pursuit of pleasure, there is some kind of upward movement here, you know? And so in a sense, pleasure is good. It's good because it shows you one, that it's not everything, that it will never truly fulfill you. But in searching for that fulfillment, sooner or later, you're, you're forced to walk up the ladder of pleasure until you get to the highest pleasures which is soul joy the pleasure that i'm going to you know try to advocate for today and so that's the first thing to notice and you know i'm sure some of you have been to raves and stuff like that and you've enjoyed um, molly right molly's great it's actually one of a very good chemical um Uh, reproduction or simulation of the yogic experience. It's very close. I'm very fortunate to have had both experiences and be able to say, oh, you know, that feeling of all is one and we're all loving, you know, it's the same kind of thing. But when you're on Mali, there are a few things you won't do. One, you won't snort any Coke, because you know the Coke will end the Mali trip. So Coke, which might have been desirable to you at a different time, um, at this point in your Molly role is no longer desirable to you. So that's what a yogi's world looks like. When a yogi looks at a decadent food cake, fruit cake, I'm oh sorry, a decadent chocolate cake or something, where someone else or the yogi herself at a different time in her life might have seen that chocolate cake is desirable, now she doesn't want to fuck with her high. You know, that's really what it is. Like the yogi doesn't want to fuck with her high. And she knows that eating that decadent chocolate cake is going to ruin it. You know, so once you really refine your pleasures, you start to become a little bit more discerning with what you will take and what you won't. Yeah, so I'm getting a nice uh, scientific explanation here. The two separate levels of the Eighth Circuit Model of Consciousness. Stimulant, fighting, and actogen. Yeah, precisely, in so many words. So that's the thing about pleasure. Now, another thing, so we'll just put pleasure aside for a moment. There's a lot to unpack there. But another thing I want to say is that to continue our discussion, we should understand three different words um, that yogis use for pleasure. And this is important. In Sanskrit, each word has a different connotation. In the same way, happiness, joy, and meaning have different connotations. And they're different for everybody. Um, yeah, Ramdas, beautiful spirit. But in yoga, we use three words. One is sukha, one is sandosha, and one is ananda. So the words are as follows. Sukha translates to pleasure, generally speaking. Sandosha translates to contentment. And ananda translates to bliss. So sukha is an interesting word because the word actually means pleasant space. It means to be in a good place, to be in a good space of consciousness. Lots of things bring sukha. So sitting on a chair, very comfortable chair, sukha. You know, there's even a yoga pose called sukhasana, easy pose or pleasurable pose or comfort pose. And sukha is the feeling of the breeze, you know, brushing the face. It's the taste of a delicious confection on the tip of the tongue. So sukka can encompass pleasure or it can encompass any state of satisfaction. Now, the thing about sukha is it is almost always followed by its opposite, which is dukkha. Dukkha means bad space and it's often translated as suffering. Um, and the Buddha specifically uses the word dukkha very technically to mean suffering. Sukha and dukkha are inseparable. Where there is sukka, there will be dukkha. And where there is dukkha, there will be sukkha. So this is an important kind of concept to internalize. And it takes people a while to get this. A lot of people are still under the impression that sukkha will last forever or dukkha will last forever when it's happening. So when someone is having a good day, they they don't think anything can ruin it. You know, like sometimes they're like, oh yeah, this is this is good. And almost always something ruins it. When someone's having a bad day, they're like, oh, this is my life now. You know, but sooner or later, they find something to be grateful for. They forget that they were sad at all. Now they're happy. So if you're able to zoom out of life, you will be able to see that your life up to this point has been nothing more than a series of ups and downs, a series of sukkas and dukkahs. You've tried to move towards the sukkah and you've tried to run away from the dukkha. But no matter how hard you tried, no matter what you did, chasing sukkah brought you dukkha. Being a dukkha brought you sukkah. So your suffering created meaning for you. You know, your bad days gave your good days meaning. And your good days caused there to be bad days because now you were comparing. I don't remember who said it. I think it might have been Ralph Waldo Emerson or something. But somebody said in the West, somebody said... Uh, Comparison is the thief of joy. Something like that. Like if you saw a beautiful sunset yesterday and today you're looking at a sunset and you're comparing it to yesterday's sunset, maybe this one's not going to do it for you. You know, so the idea that having sukha creates dukkha or having dukkha creates sukka, is something that um, sooner or later everyone figures out, but it takes some of us more time than others. Yogis, generally speaking, are people who, who have figured that out, who have not only figured out that life is a series of ups and downs, but are asking the question, what more is there to it than that? You know, there's something kind of meaningless almost about this perpetual pendulum swing between sukka and dukkha. If you closely analyze, you'll start to see that they're both sides of the same coin, and you'll be able not even to separate them anymore if you're tasting something good, you know the seeds of dukkha are sown into the experience of sukkha. So you know that everything you acquire can be taken away from you and will be taken away from you in time. Everything dies. Everything changes. Tomorrow, even if you don't lose what you have, tomorrow you might no longer be she who enjoys what you enjoyed yesterday. So given that, every sukkha will sooner or later turn into a dukkha for you. You made a bunch of money today, wonderful. Sukkah, you're feeling happy. Tomorrow, um, your kid gets kidnapped from the international school you sent him to because, you know, people... (laughs) Christina laughed at that. I'm just like, wait, that's horrible. But (laughs) it's dark, it's dark. Um, Yeah, and I love this. When you escape the ups and downs, you have energy to use. Yes, that's another point, it's draining. So, you know, you realize that the joys in your life are setting you up for the suffering in your life. You know that everything you acquire will create the fear of loss. And you know the suffering in your life is setting you up for joy in your life. So you know when you like hit the gym and you're like working really hard and everything hurts and you're sore the next day, you know that you're gonna get more tender days. So like, you know, you're willing to suffer the suffering. um, in order, But then you go, you hit a point where it feels so repetitive, arbitrary, and meaningless. So this is an important point to hit. It's called divine dispassion. If you haven't yet hit this point, then there is still value in going through life in its ups and downs. Like you're still playing the game, you know, and it's a game worth playing. But ultimately you come to the realization that sukkah and dukkha are the same thing, So you start to ask if there was other kinds of joy in your life that was meaningful. Then we come to Sandosha. So Sandosha is a little bit higher than Sukha. Patanjali, the great sage of yoga, um, even says that in Sandosha is the supreme joy. It translates the supreme Sukha or the highest form of Sukha is Sandosha. Sandosha is contentment. So in in some sense, you can think of sandosha as mindfulness. Sandosha might be the ability to enjoy sukha, but there is a flavor of presence to it. Where sukha kind of connotes an energy draining uh, pursuit away from dukkha and towards sukha, there's always some kind of activity going on with sukha. Sandosha is more restful. Sandosha is perhaps the experience of enjoying the sukkah. So it's one degree removed from the sukkah. Sandosha or Sandosham, it's the feeling of like, oh, this is good, or this is okay, or this is just rightness, you know? Because sometimes, you know, you go to a party, you get to the perfect level of drunk, you know? You're like drinking and you get to the perfect level of drunk, but still you want to drink more. And you don't really know why. Like you you just can't enjoy this buzz. You need to go and pursue more and then you're throwing up, right? But the point there is that sukha motivates you to go and get more sukha. Sandosha is that moment in between two sukha events where you're enjoying the sukha. Above that is ananda, bliss. And I want to maybe show you what that bliss looks like today, hopefully. But in order to do that, Um, let's backtrack a little bit. So we've been talking about pleasure um, and pleasure is one way that people see as worthwhile to pursue. And I offer two more. The second thing that people might say is, you know, what constitutes enjoying life is adventure. So this is another one. Some people are beyond pleasure. They're like, yeah, I don't need pleasure anymore. Pleasure is fun. Pleasure is good. I will still enjoy it when it comes around. But life is more than pleasure. Life is actually about adventure It's about going out and uh, learning stuff and seeing new things. And, you know, sometimes adventure is tough, but I welcome that because it's an adventure. So there's something a little bit more noble and heroic in the adventurer as opposed to the pleasure seeker or the hedonist. So the hedonist is just looking for pleasure, trying to run away from suffering. The adventurer is a little bit more inclusive of both in order to have an adventure. So Simone Beauvoir, the Western philosopher, says this is one of the highest ways to live, adventurism, but it's not yet the ultimate. So let's think about what adventure gives us, right? It gives us the ability to learn and to grow. And where addiction is contrary to your true nature, expansion, growing, learning is more aligned to your true qualities as a a conscious being. So in some sense, adventure can fulfill that natural instinct to grow. But here's the problem. People who have traveled all over the world, who um, have done really beautiful things, like they've gone to the Bermuda Triangle and survived, and they did some man versus wild things in Patagonia. They've done all that stuff. At the end, there still might be a feeling of emptiness. And this is hard to express unless you've gone out and had a bunch of adventure. But you need to go out, do all this adventure, and then come home and ask, has that adventure really changed me on a fundamental or deep level? You know, has any of this learning really meant anything to me? And there might be a feeling at the end of your adventures that is a little bit like the feeling at the end of gratification of a pleasure, which is emptiness. A feeling of like, that was great, but it wasn't quite it. Now, the pleasure didn't fully fulfill you. The adventure also didn't fully fulfill you. Maybe the adventure kept you occupied for more than the bite of a chocolate chip cookie, but it still didn't do it. That's the thing. So the adventure, you know, you're going to, um, right, learning for the sake of learning. We're going to get there. And there's a certain kind of learning, you know, that we're talking about. Because there's a way to learn and not gain any wisdom. So there's a way to get a lot of knowledge without any wisdom. So you can read books on everything, you can visit every country, you can learn every language, you can figure out how to operate every kind of machinery, but still not feel like you achieved anything. And in fact, a lot of really highly successful people at the end of their lives report, often in memoirs and autobiographies, that they do feel empty inside. Yes, they haven't internalized any of it, or worse, it didn't really mean anything in the broad scheme of things. And you can think of it this way. You probably have had events in your life that um, epitomized adventure. You know, maybe there was a time in your life of like that required ingenuity on your part. There was a life-threatening situation. You had to sort, um, you know, using spontaneous in-the-moment tools. You had to figure out a way out of that situation or something. And that was cool. But right now, it doesn't really matter. You know, like you don't really think about it that much. It happened in the past at some point and you almost remember it just like you remember a pleasure with nostalgia, but it's just gone. It's flitted from your fingers. The same way a pleasure comes and goes, the adventure also comes and goes and it leaves you with nothing to show for it. That's the problem. It's like for some reason the fact that pleasure and adventure don't really change you that might be what is ultimately disappointing about it. It feels as if all of these experiences while they are good in the moment are surface level. You know like when you come it's it's that moment when you come home from the party or you're lying in bed at night after the orgasm of a lifetime, right? It was like the best sex of your life. But it's that moment after when you're staring at the ceiling and you ask just for a moment, what was it all worth? You know, what will this actually mean to me? And you might have been told by society and by the media that it should mean something to you. And now it becomes even more painful because you have the expectation that was built up in you by you know a well-meaning society. And now you got it. They told you to be famous. You got it. They told you to be rich. You got it. They told you to chase all your sense gratifications. And you got it. Exactly. But there's so much, and someone says this is a reference to the past rather than the joy of now. And that's the thing. It's like these things came When they came, you weren't able to hold on to them. They passed away. And now all you're left with is memories. And you're told that that's worth something. But something in you still feels like it's not enough. Like these memories aren't enough. There's got to be more to life than just clinging on to nostalgia or half-remembered things, you know? The truth is, um, anybody who speaks to old people might be shocked by how unhappy a lot of them are you know, a lot of them get to the end of their lives. And, you know, a lot of people don't get to talk to old people because in Western culture, specifically, old people are put away. You know, they're put in old folks' homes. You don't want to see death. We don't want to see sickness. We don't want to see old age. So as a result, we don't really get to see how failed life is as a project when lived the way we're told to live it. And it's not our fault, you know, we we came to this life and we didn't really know what was what, and we were handed a manual by people who themselves came to this world and didn't know what was what, and they were handed a manual by people who came to this island and didn't know what was what, and they were handed a, you know. And so there's this long continuum of defunct or um, derelict ways to live life, and a lot of people have lived that life and at the end of it are telling you that it's not worthwhile, but no one's listening. You know, no one is looking at the rock stars and billionaires who are committing suicide. No one is going to the old folks' home and talking to the Vietnam War war veteran who says that at the end of the day, I'm here alone in my old folks' home. My kids have left me and they don't speak to me anymore. I barely know my grandchildren. And one day I know I'm going to die here alone. And in that moment, I'm going to ask myself, what was it all for? You know, there's a deep thirst that is not being quenched by all this pleasure and by all this adventure. So that's ultimately what um, yoga tries to... Oh, thank you. Just someone who's very sweet. Uh, But yeah, yoga um, or any kind of spirituality or any kind of philosophy really ask the question, what is worth living for? What is worth dying for? What is worth fighting for? What makes life noble? What makes life meaningful? So when someone experiences this emptiness, that's when they turn to philosophy. The problem is it's often too late. You know, Um, it's too late in a person's life and they're not able to actually practice yoga or practice a spiritual path. So we're in this unique opportunity. A lot of us are young we're healthy, we're able to carry out this spiritual work. The only question now is, is it worthwhile to carry out this work? I mean, you've been given a lot of promises as to what would satisfy you before and you're not completely done with, you haven't really closed your accounts yet with adventure and pleasure. So you might not yet be ready to embark on the spiritual quest. So a sign of development, actually, in the spiritual aspirant is divine dispassion, they call it. Um, In German, weltschmerz, world wariness. You know, the feeling that, like, Nothing is really going to do it for me in this life, um, but maybe then something in spirituality might. So this world weariness can lead you into a very earnest spirituality, but it's not necessary to have it in order to be spiritual. The best spirituality, yoga says, comes from this world weariness, but you're still able to maybe, you know, half in, half out. Of it. And so my job really is to create arguments that maybe plant seeds that will flower into this world weariness. So for now, let's just accept this argument that pleasure and adventure don't really do it for you. But in pleasure and in adventure there are certain spiritual lessons. So for instance, if you ask what was it that made the adventure or the pleasure worthwhile, the answer might actually point you to that which is actually worth So the second thing I want to say, and the first thing I wanted to say was yogis aren't against pleasure, they're only against small pleasures. The second thing I wanted to say is that all small pleasures are um, an ignorant way of trying to fulfill deeper pleasures or deeper needs. So small pleasures are analogs or metaphors or misrepresentations for some other thing, some other desire. And today will culminate in zoning in, really, zeroing in on what that fundamental desire is in a human being. So what is it about pleasure? In the previous class, we talked about what uh, the implications of being here now really was. So we said being here now was simply releasing any consciousness of the past or consciousness of the future. We define consciousness of the past as memory, and we define consciousness of the future as expectation. We found in our previous class that suffering comes in two forms, actually four. One, it comes in the form of trauma, regret, or resentment. So this is suffering in the form of memory. Or it comes in the form of nostalgia. Something in the past was better Than what's going on right now? So I'm suffering now. Or something in the past was so bad that I'm thinking about it now and I'm suffering now. The other two ways suffering can come is as fantasy. So you want something in the future that's better than now, and this, this creates an expectation, and then it might disappoint you. Or anxiety. So that's the fourth form, and a very common form of suffering, which is fearing for a future that might be worse than the present. So even if the present sucks, There's this fear that it could always be worse, you know? So when we really analyze suffering, you see that all four forms of suffering are nothing more than memory and expectation. So being here now, um, yeah, even daydreaming, that's precisely right. Like daydreaming takes you out of the now, takes you into some future. Of course, there's a certain kind of daydreaming that I advocate for, which is astral projection. We'll talk about it in some class. But the ability to like zone out, is super spiritual. You'll see babies do it all the time. They'll just like look at a wall. They are straight meditating. They're like a frog. You know, you can, if you look at a frog, they just sit still all day. The frog just sits. And if you go near a frog and you open up your yogic senses, like you hold your hands out, you will feel a peace emanating from that frog. You know, the frog is straight out tripping. The frog exists in pure bliss and they're just sitting there like stone. But it's a kind of stone that is so much deeper than the regular marijuana hive. But yeah, babies do that all the time. They just like space out and the parents tell them not to. (laughs) It's a pretty spiritual practice. But yeah, so when we analyzed suffering, we saw that suffering was nothing more than thinking about the past or thinking about the future. So we defined yoga last week as any practice that brings you into the here and now, that makes you present in your body, makes you present in your senses, makes you truly here such that you forget. Yesterday, you forget tomorrow. You forget a second ago, you don't even think about the next second. You're just here. And we found something interesting. If you are able to be here, then you are least yourself. You are not your personality. Because we found last week in our discussion that your personality was nothing more than memory and expectation. Who you are is just your consciousness of a personal history and your awareness of plans, goals, ambitions for the future. If you took that away, you wouldn't be a person. You would just be experiencing. You would be an experience, not a person, an experience. So we found last week that the reason why we suffer is because we've set up this false identity as an experiencer and being the experiencer separates us from the experience. So it feels like life is happening over there. We're always missing it. Like life is happening behind this glass screen. And the only life that we Oh, someone says, uh, watched with my yogic senses, my landlord's outdoor um, cat catch a frog today. Yeah, (laughs) watching animals, it's the best. Really teach you how to do asana even, how to move in asana. But so the idea then it's like, your only interaction with life is as a memory or as a fantasy. And that's what makes life so insubstantial. You can't live on fantasy and memory. It's not real. It's mind stuff, it's delusions, and you sense that you're missing something. You're missing out on life. And you know, um, I think John Lennon nails it right on the head, you know, when he says, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. That's about right, you know, like life is what happens when you're busy thinking too much about it. And so yoga basically says your ability to enjoy life is inversely proportional to your thinking. The more you think, the less you enjoy. So one way to think of this, think, forgive me. One way to conceive of this is you're eating the strawberry. Now, four levels. One, you're not even tasting the strawberry because you're thinking about um, something that happened to you yesterday something the roommate said that was just just unacceptable that the roommate said that you know I can't believe she would say something like that after all the time I spent cleaning the dishes she would tell me that I'm not doing my choice you know so in one sense you're thinking that you're eating the strawberry didn't taste it you missed out on life you know um, so a lot of people that's most of our realities you know we miss out on life the second level is you're there with the strawberry you're tasting the strawberry but you're comparing it to other strawberries. So while you bite it, you go, hmm, how does, uh, we'll get to genetics in a bit, hmm, how does this strawberry compare to that strawberry? Or I wonder if the next strawberry will be better than this strawberry. So you can see in the second part, it's still kind of better than the first guy. You know, the first guy is not there with the strawberry at all. The second person is more with the strawberry, you know, because they're, they're in the realm of strawberryness but it's still strawberry past, strawberry future. The ghost of strawberries past and future. (laughs) Uh, Would you say that riding underneath the wave of emotion instead of on it almost as an observer? Yes, yes, exactly. We're getting there. We're getting there in a moment. That's level four. So level one, you're tasting life, but you're thinking about other stuff. So you don't taste the strawberry. Level two, you're thinking about strawberries, but you're thinking too much. You're thinking about the strawberries of the past. and You're thinking about the strawberries of the, of the future. So you want with the strawberry of the now. Now, level three, and this is the most subtle one. If you can get to level three, you can say you're relatively enjoying life. Level three is the thought, ah, what a delicious strawberry. Like biting the strawberry, you're not thinking about the past. You're not thinking about the future. You're just thinking, ah, what a delicious strawberry. Get this though, even this is not quite it, because here there is still a thought. The thought that is separating you and the strawberry is your judgment, ah, what a good strawberry. This is a trap that we mostly fall into. This is why our meditation doesn't really become deep, because when it starts to become deep, when we're sitting and we're meditating, suddenly we feel this wonderful bliss and we go, ah, what wonderful bliss, and then we're out, you know? Um, some of you might have lucid dreamed a little bit, and you might know that the moment you start to lucid dream, you get excited, and then you come out of it. You, like, lose the lucid dream. Um, and those of you experimenting with astral projection, you start to feel lifting, and then you're like, oh, my God, it's happening. You know, I worked. Yeah, you can write down, like, you know, so it's like, I was vegetarian for, I, I did raw foods for three weeks. I slept in Shabasana on the hard floor. I worked so hard to, I read every book. Now I'm doing it, and then you come back, you know? So, That's the real trap. It's that any thought creates a duality between you and the thing. So now there are three levels of duality. One is you are here and the strawberry or let's say the experience is there and you're nowhere near it because you're thinking about what the roommate said to you. Or you're getting closer, but you're still not near that experience because you're thinking of a previous experience or a future experience. Then finally, you're close to the experience. You're not thinking about future or past experiences, but you are still one thought away from the experience. Dig that. There's still a screen. And at that point, you are close, but you are still here and the experience is still there. So there's still a subject-object dichotomy. There's a, per, a experiencer and an experience. The point of which your experiencer goes away completely, and you are just the experience. That's what we call ananda. So you can think of it as like level one person who's not with the strawberry is in dukkha, is in suffering. You know, they're they're really not enjoying life. You know, they're caught up in their fantasies and delusions. And a lot of life is like, you know, they're, they're drudging their way through it and they're bitter. Um, So that's level one. We are that way with many things. We could be at a level four with some things and a level one with others, you know, a truly realized being though, washes the dishes the same way that she gives a philosophy lecture, the same way that she, you know, like everything is just the experience. The realized being, she's not there. There's nobody home. It's just a pure experience of life, like a a pure dance, you know, an infinite flow state. Someone asked, can thought level three be ever eternally preserved? Or is it always moving towards four or five? That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, there definitely is a movement here, as we talked earlier, like... You know, it might it, it might be added that if you do nothing, if you don't do any spiritual work, according to yoga, in four hundred and eighty-two zero 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 years, you will become enlightened. So that's just that's the evolution of it. Like your soul is drawn back into the light. It's just the the duration of You know, we can talk yogic metaphysics all night and maybe we will if you want to stick around and we get to the end of our lecture today. Um, But um, there is, yes, dance pure and wash your dishes. (laughs) It's like the Zen thing. What do you do before enlightenment? Chop wood, carry water. What do you do after enlightenment? Chop wood, carry water. (laughs) Dance pure and wash dishes. I love that. But yeah, so the idea is that at that point, you are just the experience. So the realized being, it doesn't matter what they're doing, They're just there with it. They're not thinking about the past or the future. They're not even thinking about them. There is no them, it's just the thing. Um, And so, you know, we can be at a level one with some things and a level four with others. So when you're at a level one, you're in Dukkha. You're not enjoying life, total drag. You're missing the point, life feels shallow. And that's why you're so bitter, you know? It's like a thorn in the foot, you know, the lion, they thought it was a mean lion, but then they found it was just a thorn in the lion's foot. It's an old story. And the mouse came and took the thorn out and the lion was nice. It's like that. Most people who are mean, it's just because they're in dukkha. you know? They just haven't learned how to enjoy life. Then people get a little closer. Yeah, that story. It's cute, huh? It's a cute story. I love animal stories. (laughs) Uh, And then, you know, you get to the point where, like, you taste the strawberry, but you're not really there. You're thinking about other strawberries. Now, for us, this is what a lot of our mindfulness looks like you know, we're showering and we can be like, oh, the water is so warm, but you're not really, you know, you're thinking about maybe other showers at other times, or sometimes I notice this thing that happens to me. I'll be like enjoying something really sensually, like uh, essential oils, you know, in the bath. And then I'll start thinking about other self-care things that I enjoy. You know, I'll be like, oh, you don't be really good when I get that incense, that Nag Champa incense for the altar. Um, And while I'm in the shower... I'm thinking about prayer, you know, cause I know I'm going to be excited there. So there's like that thing that where you're not really quite there. Yes, I, I am here every Monday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, so you get that kind of sense where you're at the pleasure, but not quite. So most of us are here. So if you're suffering, you haven't found this yet. If you're sort of enjoying life, you know, you're here. If you're truly enjoying life, you're not thinking about the past or the future. You're just there with that strawberry. You're like, yeah. Now, to really enjoy life though, the highest, the peak of enjoyment is when there isn't even the thought, ah, what a good strawberry. So this we call Ananda. It's pure bliss. Many of you have felt it at various points. Hello from, someone says, neither the German says hello from Germany. Hello from Los Angeles. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. My uh, 500-hour teacher trainer was actually from Germany. And a lot of German yogis have really... Like Hermann Hesse, who wrote Siddhartha. A lot of respect for Germans. I love Kant, Immanuel Kant and Nietzsche. Anyway, so um, the point here in closing is just that you have all at various points in your life experienced complete thoughtlessness And it was blissful beyond belief. And there were different degrees. So when you have a pleasure, what is it about the pleasure that makes it good? It's actually in that one second or a few milliseconds, really, to be realistic, you don't think. In that one millisecond, when you bite the chocolate chip and the joy of that sweetness explodes on your tongue, the unfurling pleasure, mm, it's like, oh, you're obliterated. Your concepts of self in that millisecond are gone. And then what happens? You fall back into yourself and then you need another bite. And then another bite. You're not chasing the pleasure. You're chasing that, which the pleasure did to you, which was oblivion of your personality. When you go on an adventure, you're not chasing adventure. You're chasing novelty. When you're in a country where you don't understand the language, you are freeing yourself from memories you know, there's no longer the McDonald's down the street that reminds you of that breakup because now you're in Germany. Um, there's a different McDonald's down a different street and it doesn't remind you at all about Stacy. you know? So you're freed from the memories a little bit. Goddamn Stacey. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you're like freed from the memories a little bit and that was the kicker. That's what made adventure good. After a while, it all gets stale. And the reason it gets stale is because it ceases to do what you want it to do, which is obliterate yourself. Drugs or psychedelics are good because they take you out of yourself. But as Ram Das points out, they're bad because ultimately you come back into yourself. So what we're looking for is that permanent obliteration of the past and future. In other words, the permanent obliteration of you as an entity, as a perceiver, as a Experiencer, until all that's left is the pure, unadulterated nowness of the experience itself. And then you are the pure ground of that experience. Then you experience a feeling of just spaciousness. It's a feeling of peace, a deep suffusion of joy. And that feeling is there even in Dukkha. Now that's the beauty. Sukka is antithetical to Dukkha. When you're suffering, you're not in Sukkha. Sandosha kind of depends on sukka. If the Dukkha is too much, there won't be Sandosha. But if you can be Ananda, even in times of grief and suffering, you don't suffer. That's what it means to truly enjoy life. And then everything becomes truly enjoyable because it no longer has any baggage. You know, your life becomes natural, spontaneous, and effortless. And when you taste a confection, in fact, everything becomes delicious. Like um, the smell of the air when you step out of the house, gorgeous. You know, the feel of the silks on your skin when you wear your clothes, just gorgeous. Gorgeous you return to that like baby-like state where everything is fresh and new. So maybe it all sums up, and we'll say this in closing, the kingdom, uh, lest ye be as little children, yours is not the kingdom of heaven. And therein, Jesus might just be saying, you've lost your innocence. And the reason you've lost your innocence is because nothing is new for you anymore. You compare everything to other things. You are not approaching things with curiosity (laughs) Someone says, um, as I sit here eating chocolate-covered pretzels. (laughs) Um, And someone says, from the ground of experience, you can describe it to anyone without predicting while it's happening. Can you elaborate on that? I'm not quite sure I, I understand that. So, yes. So, in closing, the kingdom of heaven for Jesus might just be a state in which everything feels new, everything feels fresh, everything's exciting, but that's only because you aren't thinking about it. So notice that as a child, you have less thoughts. As you grow up, you put on more and more thought baggage. As an old person, you are nothing but left with your thoughts. In some cases, you get lucky. When you get older, you become wiser and you become more childlike. You know, as you get older, you realize that the things that matter to you when you were a go-getter intern at Warner Bros., like that stuff wasn't as important as you thought it was. You know, so you get a sense of perspective and you no longer need to, you know, impress everyone. And then you get a kind of chill to you. But still, you know, to truly get to that place, you must be so present that there is nothing but the experience and not the experiencer. So yoga, in conclusion, says your ability to enjoy life is directly proportional to how present you can be and you can be on two levels at once. So you can be sad, meaning your, you know, your ego could have suffered a loss or your ego could have gotten a gain. Both of them, when looked at from this perspective of pure experience, it's blissful. Is infinitely blissful. So that um, will... Sorry, I went four minutes over. That will sum up our... Um, enjoyment portion today I, I do want to get into um, kind of why you're here you know like why why Ananda why bliss where does it come from um, what, where does bliss come from why is it that bliss is the highest pleasure um, maybe we'll do that next week uh, unless you, like, you want to I don't know if you have questions we'll open it up for questions I prefer to kind of do that So maybe we'll see if we can tease it out through the questions. So thank you, everyone. I noticed,
1: like, when we were talking about the daydream thing, and, like, I remember from a couple classes ago, you said, like, something about, like, suffering. Like, we see suffering as, like, functional when it's not real. And then, like, that, like, reminded me of, like, when, like, you imagine something so like bad and then you start crying and then it's like, wait, like, that's not even real though. Like I just made that up in my head. Like, (laughs) and then it's like, wait, I just created my own suffering accidentally. Like, right. I just thought about that.
0: That's a beautiful point. It's like the, the idea that you could cry over spilt milk but even imagine spilt milk is mind-blowing. No milk was spilt, but you're crying anyway, you know? It feels like the milk. Yeah. It still feels It still way. feels like the, yeah. And, you know, that should really show you something, that there's no intrinsic difference, really, between, like, reality and your, like, oh, wait, I don't want to say that, because reality is very technical. But um, as long as you're creating delusions, one delusion is as good as any other. Um, I wonder if I can phrase that better, but all thought stuff or thoughts are a reality in themselves. So thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, they're relatively speaking real. Um, but compa- and, and, and the same way, a dream is real, you know, while you're in the dream, it feels real, but then you wake up from the dream. And for some reason, you know, this non-dreaming is waking to like be more real, you know, for some reason. So it's like that, like you, Christina, are able to identify, like, oh, it felt real, but it really wasn't.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, remind me, and you're right, that was about four classes ago or so, when we were talking about the movie, the Divine yeah. Movie. Yeah. And uh, the only reason there's suffering in the world is because we're watching a movie and it's not real. And suffering is okay if it's not real. It's just fun. It's fun. Just fun. It's, it's part of the show. I um, mean, yes, bliss, Ananda, um, is not quite the same as Samadhi. So someone is asking a very technical question about Samadhi. And Samadhi is a specialized meditating technique that a yogi, yes, the divine game, it's called the lila, the dance, the divine game, A lila, cosmic play, But there's a term in yoga, it's samadhi, which is a specialized meditation technique that causes you and the thing that you're meditating on to become one and the same, and thereby you experience this bliss. Bliss is a consequence of samadhi. It's not the same as samadhi. So if you're able to practice samadhi meditation, which is the ability to completely merge with the object, of your meditation such that there is no longer a difference between you and that which you're meditating on. And this could be the strawberry in the mouth, for instance. Then you're in Samadhi um, and that brings bliss. But there are a lot of different levels of Samadhi. There's Savicara, Savitarka, nirbikalpa. you know, sabicara, uh, nirbh- you know uh, Asamprajnata. So in a technical d- dialogue, Don't confuse samadhi with bliss, though bliss is a natural byproduct of samadhi. Samadhi is a method, bliss is an emotion. I don't want to say emotion, bliss is a state. Ananda is a state. So you will feel it, you know, when you are, you will feel it as you meditate. The more you meditate and the more you practice your yoga, you will start to feel it at random moments in the day. You know, you'll be like watering the plants and it, it, it it starts to happen it's like a fragrance in the room you know it just bubbles up from within you and it feels different it's so qualitatively different Christina you you know
1: I like I actually like just told like one of my like group chats about this like lately like I've been like feeling like it's not dissociation because I still like know like, I still kind of know like i'm here but like it's like super like surreal like i was like with my dog and i was looking outside and, and like i don't know how to explain it's really hard to explain why like my life wasn't like my life anymore it was like and like it but it felt good like i was just like all right like i'm vibing like i don't know how to explain it it was like presence like that's basically it like Yeah, like that's why I like I was thinking it was, but like I've had like I in like high school I I, like had like experiences with like derealization and like disassociation and like did not feel like that at all. Like it was completely like on the other side of like disassociation.
0: Exactly. And remember, we talked about the triangle. How the yeah. top kind of the triangle looks like the bottom. Yeah, it's like the this is something that really doesn't have a word in, in, in Western colloquialism because it is so rarefied, so pure, and so indescribable. You know?
1: Indescribable yeah.
0: yeah, it's like to she who has had the experience, no explanation is necessary. To she who has not, none is possible. You know, that's the tricky thing about it. But most people at some point have felt it. It's just that um, they don't know it when it's there or they're not able to talk about it because it was so brief. Yeah. But it happens like exactly when you're walking the dog, you're looking outside and you just like space out, but it's different from spacing out.
1: It's so random.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, And it gets deeper. You know, that's the thing, like that feeling... I don't know where I. I personally have not found the end. It just it gets deeper and deeper. Like the more you meditate, the more that experience becomes so rich, rewarding, and fulfilling. Um, that that's what it means to truly enjoy life. Um, whoa! I know nothing about the practice of a yogi, but it's amazing. Oh yeah, you know actually it's funny because yoga is a is a is, is a term that men, like that talks about the destination of a journey that has many forms so um painting can be yoga if it takes you to that place you know martial arts can be yoga um uh i don't know there's so many ways to get to the same place um it's just that in indian spirituality we're trying to make the road shorter you know so you don't have to go through so much trial and error we just want to provide some tools and tips and tricks that might help you up the mountain. But when you get on the mountain, you never needed any of that. Because it's so simple. It's like all this asana, you know, we're doing our downward dog. We're doing the pranayama, breathing it through one nostril and not the other. And all of that is just so we can sit with the dog and look outside and be like...
1: <laughs> I think it was like a TikTok I saw or like on Twitter. It was like like all of these things like tarot and like like meditation all of this stuff like they're all like permission slips like that like you feel the need that you need to grant yourself but like you don't really need any of them because like you're already it yes
0: yes yeah. that's beautiful christina that's precisely right you don't need to do anything because there's nowhere to go because you're there already you're done <laughs> the yeah. is you just need to remember um, yeah. Someone did ask, uh, you mentioned people being, old people being unhappy. Do you know if old yogis, spiritual people report being happy? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's not like, it's not even, you know, you do, some people will tell you that they're happy, but you know that they're not. I don't know. You know, you ask someone like, how are you? And they say, oh, I'm fine. But there's something in their tone that connotes tension or stress The only way you can see if someone is happy is not by listening to what they say to you, because especially in Western society, everybody wants to put up a pretense that they're fulfilled or happy or that they're living their best life. Right? So Instagram and everything like that, it's just, I got to show people that I figured it out that I'm living my best life, but then you're actually with them. You know, you meet the on-screen persona in real life and you go to Whole Foods together and they're like, upset because they don't have the brand of incense that they want you know and then you realize like oh what they meant when they said i'm happy is this awful like day of just you know everything pisses them off you know what i mean so when someone is unhappy regardless of what they say you know it you know an unhappy person when you see one um similarly someone can come to you and say oh I've experienced the deepest bliss of meditation. I have astral projected to the furthest realm of, you know, all that stuff. Um, but you know they're talking out of their ass, you know, because <laughs> you look at them and they don't have that quality of like landedness, of like peace. So that being said, it shows in the face. There's a continence. You know, it's, it's in the eyes. If you look someone in the eyes you, and you just look in the eyes, you can see it. And you see it in the way they do the simplest things, washing the dishes, moving their hands, walking around, you know. I love the way Herman Hesse um, describes the Buddha. You know, he says the Buddha, when Siddhartha, the character in his book, met the Buddha, the Gautama, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha, he didn't look any different from the other monks, but you knew immediately which one the Buddha was. And they said it was in the downward-pointing angle of his soft and gentle hand. That was it. The way he held his hand, you know, the way he walked. There was a grace, a beauty, and a peace to it. So it's a vibe. Ultimately, when you sit with the holy person... And in India, a holy person or a siddha, meaning a perfected being, exudes a kind of peaceful vibration that you, if you're attuned to it, granted, a lot of people will miss it. So if you're like in your head, um, a saint or like Jesus could walk right by you and you would not know the difference. You know, you will probably cut Jesus off in traffic if you're like in your head about it. But if you open yourself up to that moment and of course. No, someone says, sorry, I didn't mean to ask a bunch of questions. No, that's what this is for. <laughs> ask as many questions as you want. I, I could be here all night. Um, <laughs> but no, the, 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 the question of, like, if you are happy, you don't have to say you're happy. The same way a truly wealthy person, if they go around and like, oh, I'm wealthy, I'm so rich, they're usually not. They're overcompensating. But a person with true wealth really doesn't need to make a show of it because they're so sure of it. So similarly, a happy person um, is going to be obviously happy. You know, but what it means for that person to be happy is to be in a constant state of what Christina described, of that kind of zoning out, but the highest form of depersonalization or derealization. And someone asked about the triangle. They asked, what, what is the triangle thing that we were talking about? And to return to it, it's this very beautiful idea that Eliezer Yudowsky, the rationalist, proposed. It's that if you take a triangle, in any social or or any concept, the top of the triangle resembles the bottom. So one good example, we used the poor rich thing last time. Let's use the the player and the loser one this time. I like that one. It's like in the world of romance, you have people at the bottom of the pyramid who just can't get dates because they're so blissfully uncouth. They just don't know the ways to court. They don't understand courtship at all. So they're rascals really. They're just just such losers, right? And then they learn a little bit and they learn about the flowers and the chocolate and the poetry and they become a little bit proficient at courtship. So that's the middle of the triangle. The top of the triangle are the people that are so good at courtship, they don't need the flowers, the roses. And in fact they start acting like the bottom of the pyramid. You know, they start acting like middle school humor. Something like that. Um, Another one is wisdom. If you're really dumb, you'll have nothing to say. So you're at the bottom of the pyramid, you're quiet. If you're sort of smart, you talk a lot. So you're at the middle of the pyramid. If you are really wise, you're also silent. So in that way, the wise woman and the fool are both silent, but their silences are worlds apart. Similarly, this experience that Christina described is worlds apart from dissociation or numbing. Though they both outwardly might look the same, inwardly, they are tremendously different. One is blissful and meaningful. The other one is uh, debilitating and humiliating.
1: Yeah. The other one is like worrying, but like this one is like, okay, I'm doing something like right.
0: (laughs) It has a different energy to it. And this, I guess, takes us full circle. Because we go back to the very beginning of our class today, uh, when I was trying to point you to the fact that although the yogi and the fundamentalist Catholic church person sort of says the same thing, which is renounce worldly pleasures, the energy is different. You know, one is coming from a place of dissociation and repression, the other from a place of complete transcendence. So the word that we use in yoga for that experience that Christina very wonderfully described is ananda is bliss. And they say, and this is my favorite um, quote, actually, Ananda is inside every experience the same way nectar is in water, oil is in a sesame seed, and fragrance is in a flower.
1: I like the way you said it that one time when you said, like, like, there's a little you just, like, sitting in your heart, just looking at the world, like, calmly, but, like, you're... I surface level, like freaking out, but like the inner you is like calm.
0: Yes, yes, that was a yeah, I love the way Ram Das put it. He said something like, um, You need to find your Hirdayam or your heart cave your heart center, um, wherein you sit and watch the drama of your life unfold with unbearable compassion. You know? That's what it means to enjoy life, and I think, Christina, you got right to the core of it. Because the yogi enjoying life is just the person who is here. And that doesn't mean their life is a complete, you know, not a complete mess. Because it could be, you know, the house is on fire, there's coronavirus, there's like a war. And remember, a lot of the deepest philosophy of yoga was developed during a time when the barbarians were invading from the north. Okay, I shouldn't say barbarians. But when there was a military invasion from the north, and, you know, the Mughal kingdom was spreading through northern India, temples were being burnt in Kashmir, and people didn't know if they would live another day. Yet they practiced their yoga and they were blissfully happy, you know. Um, and that's that's when you can kind of step back. You're right. Be the witness and be the sakshi, that witness um, of your life. And then there's meaning to life. Then it becomes that movie or that TV show, you know. I don't know. I've, I've been to the cinema one time. I was sitting and there, there was someone next to me. And it, it like they were too into it, you know. <laughs> There are, like, two states. One is, like, when you're so out of it, it's annoying. When someone sits next to you and is, like, special effects, bro. You know that's not real, bro. There's no ghost, bro. You know, like, that takes you out of the movie. You're trying to enjoy it, you know? So that's that's an extreme you don't want to be on. But there's also a very annoying extreme where there's a person who's so invested in the film. They're, like, crying. They're, like, freaking out. You know, just no, cute, right? Like, like that's be sweet. fully invested in everything. Like fully, yeah, yeah, no, no, no now, that, that, now my metaphors are getting mixed and there's some tension between this metaphor and my strawberry metaphor. <laughs> in this case, I'm not talking about the, of the movie, I'm talking oh, about the movie that is our life. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy got me. But that's it, that's it. My whole like everything that no, I've learned understand. to convey has been unspooled. <laughs> You no, the funny thing is, right, when you find that place, and as we are now, like a lot of us are like shifting into that place together here, being together feels different. I don't know if you can, like, sometimes you're at a party and you're sitting and you're with people, but you're not really with them. You know, like you're here and you're in your head and they're there and they're in their head and you're like kind of thumbing your glass of wine and you're wondering what they're thinking and they're thinking what you're thinking about them and there's an interaction happening but it's also removed. There's no intimacy there, you know? But when you become the witness or the Sakshi, when you're enjoying this moment fully, I'm doing it, and then you're doing it, and then Dan is doing it, and then Austin James Parker is doing it, and Grace is doing it, and you know, Killer Queen, Zero is doing it. And then it's like, it doesn't matter where we are in space, you know? there's a feeling of real intimacy because suddenly it's not Nish talking to Christina or like Christina relating to TikTok. It's one being watching itself do its drama with itself, you know? Because then it's like me me watching me, watching me, watching me, watching me, doing this whole thing. That's the way it feels. You know, it feels like we're all in that same place and there's true being togetherness. And that's when, to Grace's question last week, having personalities matter. Like, it's exciting that there are unique expressions of the same thing right now, you know? So in essence, there's no difference between Christina, Danny, Nish, and Killer Queen. There's no difference. But in appearance, there is a difference that allows for that unity to experience itself in diversity, which is an experience a little bit more worthwhile than just experiencing you. You know? So when you hit the bliss of realization, it's not that you stop existing. It's like actually you want to exist more, but not just as Mish, as the dance, if that makes sense. Like you become the grasshopper of the league. You're in that same place and you recognize yourself in the grasshopper, but you also recognize and honor yourself in you. And that's the irony. It's like a lot of people think, oh, when you get to ego death. There's no more niche, you know? Like, there's no more personality or individualism. But if you look at Jesus and the Buddha and any guru, they're highly idiosyncratic individuals. Each one is so unique. They're charismatic and they are personalities, you know? You have Swami Muktananda with his sunglasses and his fierce Shaivite quest for power, you know, and his teaching. And then you have Maharaji sitting in a blanket throwing fruit at people. You have the Buddha who loved to argue and debate. Then you had Ramana Maharshi who sat quietly and refused to say anything even to his own mother until the insects ate his skin, you know? You have gurus who speak, gurus who are silent. You have Jesus who is the ultimate hippie hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. You have gurus who are hermits who refuse to hang out with anybody. You have Socrates, who is a beggar, who doesn't write anything. You have Plato, who writes everything. You know, they're highly unique individuals. So if you get to that place of realization, it seems not like you give up yourself. In fact, you use yourself as a tool and honor that tool as you do every other tool. You know, so when I relate to Christina, for instance, there is on one level, the Nish personality relating to the Christina personality, you know? And we might one day talk about the TV series Friends. And it will just be that. It will just be us talking about the TV series Friends over coffee. And on the same time, there is a deeper relationship where Christina, as the Sakshi or the Witness, is enjoying the drama of her life as it appears as Nish and Christina. And Nish enjoying the... or sorry, the Witness enjoying the drama as Christina and Nish. Notice that's the same place. So and that moment where Christina, the witness is, is the same place that Nish is, which is watching it all. That's true intimacy. So the only way to enjoy a relationship with someone else is to witness with them. Sit with them, so to speak. You know? So I don't know if you can feel it, but as, you sit, as we sit together now, there's like a high vibration. There's like a feeling of like, oh my God, this is, this is good. This is nice. I like this.
1: You know? mm-hmm. like unity.
0: Ah. Yeah. There's an intimacy. There's a unity. Like I see Austin's face for the first time tonight. Mm-hmm. And I see him smiling and this feeling of like, oh, how beautiful. You know, like I'm so happy that you're here. You know, there's that feeling of like deep love. Like, Like, yes, you know, this is a perfect creation. Why do I think that? Because I created it, you know? And then why does Austin think that about me? Because he created it. Like we're enjoying finally the thing that we made together as one person, if that makes sense. (laughs) You know, I once said like this whole life thing is a very schizoid experience. It's like God's schizophrenia, you know? That's what the world is, God's schizophrenia. (laughs)
1: you guys too old, so you shaking <laughs> <laughs> you broke Danny <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah I'm not <laughs> uh, and this question went by too quickly. But I hope that it was all answered on TikTok, that everything, hopefully, we managed to hit everything. Um, that was beautiful. I really, really enjoyed um, yeah. you know, it. It's funny, back home, when spiritual, like they call it a satsanga or spiritual family which are people who are on the path that gather for the purpose of being on the path. Um, and when they come together, you can drink chai all night. That's the joke. You know, it's like you must always have a lot of chai in your house because you will just talk all night. You know, you relate stories of saints, you'll, it's very addictive. But alas, you know. Um, eventually we'll part, but the beautiful thing is we'll come back together again. And Christina, I'm seeing you tomorrow, right, for the Tantra workshop. Yeah, yeah that's exciting. You're all you're all invited. Um yes, this is a beautiful session. Add me to the email list. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my god, yes. I, I told Grace to yeah. forward it to you because I don't have your <laughs>
1: I did forward it to you. Oh, <laughs> the Tantra one? Maybe not the Tantra one. Uh, yeah, we should... Well, I'll, I'll send I'm just, you... I'm just
0: going to send you my email. <laughs> <just so good. laughs> your email here, yeah, and then I will put you on the... <laughs> no, tomorrow is going to be quite exciting. We're doing the metaphysics. So today we're talking like, oh, you know, okay, let me take a screenshot, because once everyone yeah, gave me their email... I mean, knock yourselves out. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. Everyone gave me the email. I was so excited. I was going to send everyone a booklet, and then I closed the Zoom chat. Gone. I did <laughs> nine out of 16 of those people ever again <laughs> in the beginning there were a lot of people in these classes why like everyone's excited now we're at core group you know? <laughs> yeah, but I would like to extend an invitation to everyone you know on tiktok and over here tomorrow at 7 p.m uh, pacific not here on a different link I'll send you the link we are going to be talking about punk and uh, why it is that bliss or you know the 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 kind of motive or catchphrase catchphrase of tantra is we rise using the same footing that tripped us so we're going to talk about the ego and pleasure not as obstacles to spiritual practice but as a method for spiritual practice Mm -hmm. it's going to be super exciting it's with carolina goldberg who is a yoga teacher i love yes Um, You can absolutely join the classes. We are right now on Stay Home Yoga. Yeah, you want to say hello to my family over here? (laughs) Hey, friends. Hello. Come join us. We're really nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, come join us over here. You know, sometimes I don't stream, but I'm always here. And we're always here. And you get to benefit from, you know, hanging out. Yeah, that was fun.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, that was a good one. That was a good one. That was definitely a good one. Yeah, thank you guys for collaborating together. We made this a really nice one.
1: Of course. Well, I do have a class in the morning, so I'm gonna go. But it was great being here. Love you guys. Bye, hey, Christina. Have a good day. Bye.
0: Oh. What She's is the sweet spirit? Yeah. Yeah. I like her. Yeah, I, I really wanted to meet some of these people in real, like you know, and. Is she UCLA or what's her just started joining? Off of TikTok. Hey, awesome. It's so crazy how close I've gotten to people that I've met, you know? Thank you for another great episode of For the Love of Yoga. To get in on the discussion, you can find me at patreon.com slash yoga with for more episodes and more content. Stick around for some question and answers throughout the end of the rest of this podcast. And I hope to see you again in the next episode. Peace, peace, peace.